From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. This Monday, I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. We're beginning with Brexit, as the UK is planning to spend more than £700 million on border infrastructure ahead of its departure from the EU's single market. That's according to the Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove. He's been insisting everything will be in place by the deadline on December the 31st. But has to be said, said this is uh, it's all looking very last minute, um, not least the fact that Institute of Directors study that suggested that very, very few British companies are actually ready. Yeah, plenty else to be worrying about as well. You've got the double shock of the virus. We're not going to be allowed to forget about all of this. A new public information campaign coming our way. Check, change, go. That's the motto this time. It'll be the third such campaign since uh, the first time we were meant to Brexit. Uh, This time uh, you get facts, figures, advice to prepare you for the transit at the end of the transition period. At the same time as that, we hear from the Home Secretary, Priti Patel. She gives more details of the post-Brexit immigration plan. So lots of new information to come there. That is, of course, the points-based system. The government insisting it won't make it more difficult for care homes to recruit staff. A big area of potential vulnerability there, of course, after they've done so much throughout the coronavirus crisis. Uh, here is the Justice Secretary, Robert Buckland, speaking about that scheme. We are going to be basing it upon evidence and information from various sectors and being given independent advice by the Migration Committee. And therefore, I think it's too early to say that this system will somehow disadvantage the care sector. Right, well, joining us now is Daniel Kaczynski, who's Conservative MP for Shrewsbury and Atcham. Daniel, welcome to the programme. Thank you for being with us. Now, first of all, let's talk about perhaps the uh, travel warnings that are still around. Um, essentially to some countries but not others also potentially higher travel insurance costs i suppose coming from this mobile roaming charges that could be reinstated after we leave the eu more administration for people traveling with their pets i mean for the things that people meant perhaps most britons are aching for at the moment it's going to be a lot harder after the end of this year well, I think I think what we have to bear in mind is that uh, for, the, for the first time, the people of a European Union country have voted uh, on an issue pertaining to the European Union, and their wishes are going to be enacted. Uh, 
Let's not forget that each time the people of any European country have had the temerity to disagree with the European Union or Brussels, they've been told to think again and to vote again until they get it right. I'm delighted and thrilled that it's the United Kingdom and the British Parliament, who, which is the first in history, to actually enact what the British people voted for, namely the to leave the European Union. Will there be in the short to medium term uh, concerns and, and frustrations and uncertainties? Of course there will be. When you make a decision of this magnitude, of course there are going to be changes ahead of the line. But I'm very quietly confident, bearing in mind my discussions with many of the companies and institutions in my constituency, that they are getting themselves ready, that they are in discussions with their European counterparts on preparing themselves to ensure that they are cognizant of and acquiescing to the new guiding principles and framework that inevitably Brexit will bring about. What about Northern Ireland? Because a lot that we've heard so far doesn't apply over there. Michael Gove says more information coming later this month. What are you hoping to hear from him? Well, of course, of course, uh, the relationship with Ireland is going to be extraordinarily important uh, as uh, our closest neighbour and partner. And the new Irish Taoiseach is in ongoing discussions with Mr. Gove and the Prime Minister. I'm sure that uh, once the transition period is, has finished and that we move to being an independent sovereign nation, uh, that we will continue those, that dialogue with, with Ireland on an ongoing basis. Um, I have every confidence that an accommodation can be found. But what is the most important here is that we are leaving uh, to be the first to do anything is always extraordinarily difficult. There are no roadmaps. There are no signposts. Um, and sometimes to be the first to do something is extraordinarily complicated. But what we are doing is we're leaving a path with breadcrumbs for others to follow. And I speak as the first Polish-born British member of Parliament. There are hundreds of millions of citizens across the continent of Europe who, who like us, share a genuine concern about the movement, the trajectory, the direction of travel that this European Commission is taking. They're very frightened as to the ramifications for their own sovereignty and their own institutions. We in the United Kingdom have clearly becoming a petri dish. Everybody will be looking at us very, very carefully. And I have every confidence that when we thrive outside of the European Union, when our economy grows faster than the Eurozone, when we can control our own borders and our own institutions, when our Supreme Court is supreme within our own jurisdiction, they will look at that with a certain degree of envy, and we will not be the only country to leave the European Union in our lifetimes. It's not just enough to save ourselves. What we have to do now is to form an alternative to the European Union. Why should a continent as important as ours have a monopolistic system of a one-size-fits-all system and organization? Now we need to create an alternative to the European Union, a transatlantic partnership with America and Canada, one which is predicated on the common defense through NATO, an organization that hasn't lost a square inch of territory since its inception 70 years ago, and on free trade, whilst respecting individual sovereignty and currency. Now, I have every confidence that as we create that new alternative platform, that will be the prelude to an ongoing robust debate for all European and Atlantic countries as to which one of those two camps they wish 
to join, and more importantly, which one of those two camps the people they represent wish to be a part of. Daniel, let me move you on to the other crisis, I suppose, that is facing the UK and, of course, Europe, in fact, the entire world, the, the, the virus crisis and the practical things that can be done about it. Some people complaining that uh, the government has not been very clear, uh, at least uh, to, to most people, certainly in England, about what they want people to do. Let's just take the issue of face masks. Uh, a lot of confusing signals coming over the weekend. But let me ask you, do you wear a face mask? Do you think it should be compulsory to wear one in shops? Well, I think I, I have uh, tried to set an example in my constituency um, um, along what the instructions have been. So, for example, I, I go back to my constituency every weekend. Of course, you wear a mask uh, on the train and at train stations uh, and wherever it is mandatory so to do. Um, at the moment, uh, it's not mandatory to, uh, to wear them in shops, and I haven't been wearing a, a mask all the time when I've gone in to, to do shopping. But, of course, at the government makes it compulsory to wear masks, of course I will do so. Um, I think it's interesting, of course, on the one hand, they are saying that we must wear them on trains. So I, I would expect that the logic is that there, there should or will be an announcement um, that, uh, that there will be mandatory in shops. To begin with, I think some people are a little bit reticent about wearing masks. But to be honest with you, once you get used to it, uh, it's like putting on your glasses. Uh, it's something that you get used to and you don't really mind too much. But Daniel, isn't the issue that this is another area where England is behind the curve? There are 120 countries where they're compulsory in some sort of a public space, including Scotland, and England is limiting it so far to public transport. Well, I think, I think the most important thing there is, and of course, we will have a proper assessment and analysis of how each country in Europe and globally has uh, managed this crisis. Uh, I have every confidence that the Prime Minister and his cabinet has do have done everything they can um, under very difficult circumstances and that their decisions have been clinically led uh, by some of the top scientists and medical experts in the country. The thing which I take away from this crisis is how, unfortunately, devolution is starting to pick apart the fabric of our co cohesive United Kingdom. And this pandemic we have seen, and I represent a constituency which is right on the border with Wales. My constituency boundary is the Welsh-English border. And what we have seen as a border community is the most profound unpicking of that uh, United Kingdom cohesion. And as each country starts for various reasons to go its own way, as so it creates more confusion and more difficulties, particularly for people who live on the border, but also generally speaking. I think at a time when we are facing such a national crisis, the other governments and the other regional parliaments ought to come together with the national government to have one policy for the whole of the United Kingdom. And I very much regret, and I think many Many people in this country regret the different messages that Mr. Drakeford and Mrs. Sturgeon have made during this course of this pandemic. I think it's a, I think it's a serious mistake. One brief question, if, if you would, which is National Security Council tomorrow is deciding on Huawei's future in the UK and a 5G network particularly. Is it the time to get Huawei out of our system? Oh, absolutely. And I've been asking questions in the House of Commons five years ago of what the government response is on the Chinese stealing hundreds of atolls from Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, Vietnam and others and turning the South China Sea into a basic 
Chinese lake, turning all these atolls into air, permanent aircraft carriers, pouring concrete onto them and militarizing that whole area. We, we've spent a lot of money with the Americans and the Australians instigating freedom of navigation exercises through the South China Sea, a waterway through which a third of the world's right. commercial uh, ships go through. And now the mood has changed in the House of Commons. If there was a vote on Huawei, I think the majority yeah. of conservative MPs would vote against allowing this organization to continue to have All such right. an extraordinary entry into the British uh, market. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We start with an easing of the lockdown yet again. Beauty salons, spas, tattoo parlours, nail bars. These are all the sorts of businesses welcoming back their first clients in almost four months in England. Meanwhile, in Scotland, indoor shopping centres are allowed to reopen. And in Wales, you've got pubs, bars, restaurants. They could all start serving customers outdoors while hairdressers can also reopen. That said, businesses have to, of course, follow the guidelines to reduce the spread of the virus and treatments that involve work directly in front of the face will not be available. So no, we're not completely out of the woods yet, Roger, but you can go and get your nails done. Yeah, but isn't it weird that you can't get you, you can get your beard trimmed, apparently, but there's a lot of other things that you can't get done that involve makeup and all kinds of stuff. I, I, it's beyond me, frankly. Uh, at the same time, of course, these companies are under huge pressure. And interestingly, one company, Primark, says it's going to turn down the £30 million bonus payment it could claim from the government in terms of coming out of furlough. That's according to the Sunday Times. Now, this, of course, puts pressure on other large companies not to cash in at British taxpayers' expense after the Chancellor last week said companies that get staff working and keep them until January will get, January will get a £1,000 handout for every job saved. Now, that would mean businesses that have furloughed thousands of staff are in line for multi-million pound payouts, even if they're actually not struggling financially. Yeah, this is the idea that you get £1,000 no matter what, as long as someone comes back, even if they would have come back anyway. So we're going to see more pressure on other businesses to do the same, especially you've got John Lewis, William Hill among companies that have joined Primark in saying they're going to turn around, turn down that money. Uh, and then another company we've got to talk about is Asda, a long-awaited equal pay lawsuit. A Supreme Court could see thousands of supermarket workers get better wages. Uh, the uh, Supreme Court is going to scrutinise a discrimination case brought by more than 15,000 people who work at Asda. And the group saying that they should be paid the same as workers in the company's warehouses who are predominantly men. And that could have a knock-on effect essentially across the industry and boost pay for women at supermarkets with similar suits uh, against Sainsbury's, Tesco, Morrison's and Co-op as well. So potentially a windfall for, uh, for women's rights there if that goes their way. Indeed. Now, uh, there's been a Bloomberg report this morning that Boris Johnson could announce a ban on companies from installing new equipment made by Huawei in Britain's 5G mobile networks. 
from as soon as the end of 2021. This is in focus because tomorrow Britain's National Security Council will decide on Huawei's future in the UK. That's in the way US sanctions against Huawei. Sources say the review concluded that Huawei would now have to use untrusted microchips, which would make 5G security risks impossible for the UK government to control. And all this, of course, comes as part of a, what seems to be a general tightening of the views between Washington, between London and Beijing, a sense that perhaps the West generally and China are falling out. But particularly, this is a focus on Britain right now because of the Huawei issue. Well, joining us is Kerry Brown, Professor of Chinese Studies at King's College London, director of the Lao China Institute. Professor Brown, welcome to the programme. First of all, that decision tomorrow, how important is it going to be in terms of the relationship between London and Beijing? Well, Beijing has already expressed, I think, uh, unhappiness about how Huawei has been treated in the UK. Um, it's a difficult thing because their claim all along has been that Huawei is not a state company. So, they're protesting really on commercial grounds and saying that there isn't any security issue because it's not a state company. Uh, but of course, the sort of real kind of nub of the issue in the UK is the idea that Huawei is very much a state company in China. I think this is a moment really of giving clarity because over the last few months, there's been a lot of speculation about what Huawei can and can't do here. And I suppose this is the final moment. It's going to be very clear now and clear up the ambiguity and we will all know where we stand. Uh, what I thought was interesting, Kerry, was uh, our conversation with Daniel Kaczynski, the Conservative MP that we had a moment ago. And he was saying he thought the tide was turning among uh, certainly Conservatives, given more information that has come to light. And one of those things is what Roger mentioned, untrusted microchips. And that, of course, is a big security risk. Talk to us about that, because that seems to be a bit of a game changer. Well... I mean, the problem with Huawei is that it's obviously a very technical issue. And I mean, the centre in Cheltenham, I don't know what you call it, a sort of joint research centre between uh, Huawei and, and the UK, uh, looking at these security issues, um, has sort of issued reports. I think it's issued about four or five reports uh, over the last few years. They've always been very, very conditional uh, and very qualified. I mean, the basic issue is that no one has really found the security issues, but the suspicion means that people are very, very risk-averse. And some people argue, well, it would be absolutely devastating for Huawei to have backdoors and things like this, so it probably is doing things that it should. But it's so complicated that no one nowhere, really, no one really knows what, what you know, kind of is, is really happening. Least of all politicians who, on the whole, don't really have a technical background. Uh, I think it's not that politicians have sort of woken up to the security problems. Uh, I think a lot of politicians seem to have suddenly discovered China exists and they've decided, decided to also start to have a view about it. And that wasn't true until quite recently. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you say, you say that, but is there not a wider issue in all this, which is uh, that China's uh, expansion in more general terms, its change in its diplomatic effort, this wolf warrior, as it's called, style of not really being prepared to, to take things they don't want from foreigners in, in terms of the way they're being treated. This is all changing the climate globally, uh, as far as China is concerned, and, and the West. Sure. I, I mean, the core issue is that China, under a you know kind of communist one-party regime, is now standing fairly likely to be the world's biggest economy in the next decade maybe even before and so this is definitely not something that many people envisaged even 15 maybe even 10 years ago 
And I think it's really kind of caused a, a sort of massive, massive, uh, I suppose, a sort of crisis, really, uh, in Europe and America about the fact that, it, economically at least, uh, the China model it seems to be working for China. Um, so all of these issues are not old issues. I mean, I mean, they're not new issues. They've been around for quite a while. Uh, the problem really is that because of the pandemic at the moment and the economic issues that brings, they have sharpened and intensified things that were already long ago there and brought it to the mind of politicians who never really thought about these issues very much, but now suddenly have to and are thinking about them, but without a great deal of previous experience. And then practically, how would breaking links between the UK and China look, especially at a time when Britain is looking beyond Europe and trying to form partnerships with other major global economies? Well, I, I mean, the realistic uh, sort of assessment of this is that uh, post-Brexit, at the end of the year, as the UK does or doesn't have a deal with the rest of the European Union, uh, it has to contemplate a relationship with the other economies in the world, which it said it was going to try and you know deepen links with, uh, in which China will not play the role that was originally envisaged. Now, bearing in mind that some people say that China's Britain's third largest trading partner, others say it's, it's six or seven, depending on how you calculate that, that China is the world's second biggest economy, but not a major investor here. So it would, in normal circumstances, have been a major uh, objective to get into that market more, uh, I guess what we're really looking at now is scenarios in which that doesn't happen. And the question is, well, where does the UK go apart from that? To, a U to the United States, which is obviously having massive economic issues of its own, to the European Union, where we probably won't have a particularly good deal, or we won't have the deal that we have now, it'll be different, to India, to other countries. I mean, all those questions need to be answered pretty quickly. What about China's response potentially to this Huawei decision and to other decisions? We've seen this morning that uh, China has responded to US uh, pressure, particularly in regard to Xinjiang, uh, with, uh, with, with issues of, of sanctions against certain US officials. What about well, even cyber attack, in fact, the Mail on Sunday suggesting that over the weekend? Mm. Could China respond in that sort of way to all this? Well, I, I mean, something has gone badly wrong, and it's, of course... Uh, I mean, I think it's legitimate to say that Europe and America have got many, many things wrong about China. But there's also massive culpability in Beijing, uh, whose messaging and whose misunderstanding and sometimes just unwillingness to listen to concerns in the outside world has almost become pathological now. And I, I mean, the, the position we're in is that every single issue becomes almost like an existential battle between, uh, I think, a UK that is having to maintain very close security links with the United States that is more and more categorical, that it cannot work in the old way with China, and a China which is categorical that it has the right to behave the way it wants because it's a major economy now and a major power and it should not be dictated to by others. So you have a very, very big potential clash, and I think this Huawei issue is one of many other issues that's going to hit us and others, middle powers, uh, as we see the face-off between the two big players, the United States and China. Uh, and very briefly, this idea that there's almost a McCarthyite feeling uh, building about China in the West. Talk to us about that and just how that is spreading. Well, there's a fear of China, a fear of its economic clout and its political influence. I think, though, the emotions 
you know, people have about that, of course, are one thing. But being precise about what we are concerned about is really important. And that discussion, I don't think, has really been had at a very granular level at the moment. People are broadly concerned, worried and fearful. And that's where it stops. We now need to move as the UK and the US and Europe and others into a period in which we are very specific about what it is about a fifth of humanity that are having this major role, which I don't think they should be denied, but obviously in their areas in which we are fearful and concerned and we need to be very clear about why and what those areas are. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.